Three C's in a Pod, a weekly podcast from Provision Advisors. A look at the good, the bad, and the what could be better in the world of communication. Hello and welcome to Three C's in a Pod from Provision Advisors, where we give you insights and analysis on the day's hot topics and trends. On this week's show, we're going to look into some of the fallout from the coronavirus pandemic and consider what will become a new way of doing business moving forward for your company or organization. There were actually live sports this past weekend with no crowds. Is this a glimpse of what we can look forward to in the coming months as we trickle back into the future? Let's talk about it. And before we finish, here's to the graduates. As commencement season falls upon us, let's celebrate the graduates of 2020. They're certainly getting the attention they've earned. All right, let's start the show proper and go around the table. Chris, what stuck out to you in your rearview mirror? I wanted to talk about uh, those two sports that you alluded to. Um, I mentioned it, uh, I think it was on the last pod or maybe even the pod before, um, as a fan of golf and as a fan of auto racing, particularly NASCAR, I wanted to see how they would treat their return to live sports and what they would do to um, kind of take advantage of the opportunity and sell themselves. I wanted to, I'm going to steal from another podcast that I listen to routinely on the Playing Around podcast by Paige Sporanek. One of the things that Paige focused on yesterday uh, or this week in her, uh, one of the things that Paige focused on this week in her podcast was how little golf in particular did to engage the audience, right? So um, a lot of these sports, uh, even golf, really play to the fans. The athletes uh, rise to the occasion and either uh, draw from the um, excitement or draw from the disappointment of the of the fans, depending on how they're playing. And the fact that golf really didn't do much to take advantage of whether through Zoom or through social media or anything to kind of bring the audience into what was admittedly a non-traditional golf event, um, she thought, and, and I would echo, that it was a lost opportunity. So the opportunity going in was to be able to, to grab a new audience who was sports starved and that didn't regularly tune in for golf. And by not taking advantage of a younger kind of non-traditional golf set another way, like not just going with the old white guy, um, both in terms of the announcers and in terms of the audience, they missed an opportunity to really bring in a new group of folks. NASCAR, I thought, did a little bit better job of um, trying to bring both the traditional and non-traditional fans into their broadcast. But I also felt like it was a lost opportunity by not capitalizing on some new technology, by not highlighting that there were new people in the uh, in the audience simply because there was nothing else on and people were sports starved. I felt like was a a missed opportunity. And then lastly, um, I thought it was I thought it was poor form on the part of the producers to spend as much time as they did with uh, President Trump. Um, I think a lot, of, regardless of what side of the aisle you're on, regardless of how you feel about President Trump, I think a lot of people were excited about the return of sports because it wasn't the coronavirus and it wasn't. Um, politics and all of the things that we didn't get arrested from over the last three months. And spending eight to 10 minutes with the president where he gave his kind of normal pitch and told you how great things were and everything they're doing and how bad China was, I just felt like it cheapened what could have been um, a four-hour rest from the rest of the world. Uh, and I thought it was bad form. I, I hope that others won't make the same mistake. Um, you know, we're going to see this week the probably the larger golf match with uh, Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson and the two football quarterback stars. I hope they, that CBS doesn't make the same mistake or, um, excuse me, TNT doesn't make the same mistake and incorporate a political side uh, into it. And I also hope that they'll learn from the mistakes that the first golf tournament made and maybe bring the audience in a little bit more. So that that's my uh, that's my rear view for this week. We talked about it in the fall, right? When Trump went to the Alabama LSU game and this very odd intersection or forced um, intersection of, of sports and politics and kind of the same way that it's been happening with the military, you know, the, the politicizing of the military and now the, the injection of politics into sports. I'm with you. Like, you know, there, there's no, 
there's no place for it. You know, it's, it's odd enough right now doing it without any fans. Um, so, you know, let, let this, let this evolution take place somewhat holistically and, and let's get back to business as normal. Um, you know, if there really is a normal, uh, on the horizon, you know, just today on ESPN, uh, Michigan head coach, Jim Harbaugh is saying that he's totally comfortable playing games in empty stadiums. Uh, if the 2020 season demands it. Um, and, and that, that really might be the new normal. I sat down, I was so sports starved. Um, you know, you watch NASCAR. I watched the the German Bundesliga or the elite, yeah. you know, soccer league, uh, come back on ESPN and and it was downright odd uh, to watch that without any noise from the fans where you could literally hear like teammates talking to each other on the pitch. So I thought that was neat. Um, I, I, I I'm very I interested was, to see how to go forward. I'm sorry to interrupt. I thought what was no. more odd was when they scored a goal and because of the distancing rules, they yeah. couldn't <laughs> hug each other. Right. I no. mean, they couldn't, that, that was pretty weird. And, um, but I mean, they seem to have fun with it. So, I mean, you know, the oddities of all that, uh, I think were, were great. I just, I mean, I, I almost felt bad for the president because it, it, I mean, I felt bad for the office of the president because it's like, man, he just, the office just doesn't understand how it doesn't fit here. I think I would have been fine if it was just a, you know, hey, I'm uh, I'm really excited that we are now getting back to quote unquote new normal. We've got these sports going on. I hope everybody's enjoying this. I hope everybody's doing well, you know, and and left. But I just thought the giving him that, you know, seven or eight minutes of political platform just felt very weird. It's uh, we talked about this in the intro and I know, John, you're probably going to touch on this in your next segment here. Uh, but you guys talk about um these new things that we're seeing right these things that were different um in terms of from the viewer's perspective and so i wonder and we wonder what's going to stick uh as we saw professional golfers out there wearing shorts is that something that moving forward you know we're going to see i know that's i'm, I'm using a very small thing here but what are those as, as this as we return uh, to our to our reality, uh, whether it's the sports world or the business world, uh, and we see changes. You know, what is it that we're going to see? That ah, you know what that thing that we did in the past wasn't so important. This way of doing business now, uh, we're gonna we're gonna take this out for a test run and and see what sticks. Um, so that to me is going to be interesting to see, no matter no matter what arena you're in, uh, yeah. sports, I mean, political or otherwise. And that's one of the things I want to ask Eileen in the next segment, um, you, you know, just as a bit of a preview. I mean, they've started doing virtual wine tastings and virtual wine get togethers. Why wouldn't you continue that? You know, why wouldn't you have golfers continue to carry their own bags or wear shorts or whatever the case may be to, to your point? So I, I think you're right, Bash. I mean, that'll be an interesting discussion to have for several weeks. Well, it's a chance. It's a chance for organizations like the PGA Tour to reinvent themselves again. Let's talk about it from a communications angle. That the you know this is their chance to make a new brand. You know, and if that brand for golf is is less stuffy, you know, where you know it's wearing the pants and and the caddies. I love the idea of watching Dustin Johnson play a tournament in shorts and carrying his own bag. Like that, that's how, that's how everyday people are playing golf, you know? And so, so use this as an opportunity, companies, organizations, sports, whoever out there, use this as an opportunity to take a look at your brand. And, and it's, it's not changing your brand for change sake, but you know, in this particular pandemic, you should always be looking at it as a chance to evolve. Um, and think outside of the box. So uh, hopefully these sports do that. Definitely, definitely. Uh, we're going to definitely stick stick to watching and, uh, and and see how this all plays out. So uh, I know I'm interested in seeing uh, seeing what happens here in the days and, and weeks ahead. Uh, John, over to you. Uh, what was in your rearview mirror? Um, I, well, I, I'm I'm going to stay on sports for a second. You know, my rearview mirror. Uh, I'll talk about the NFL. So here, here the NFL was off of the success of the NFL draft. It gave us a little bit of normalcy again. Um, something that you know, kind of Last Dance did the the Jordan documentary on ESPN. And you know, very soon after the draft uh, was this very interesting decision or 
floated idea uh, from the NFL circles to possibly improve teams' draft positions uh, based on their hiring of minorities. And, and, it, and it was really odd how it hearkened me back to that, to the very beginnings of the affirmative action argument. Um, you know, back at the University of Michigan and, and the, uh, you know, this might be in the mid nineties, maybe late nineties. And I'm, I'm probably dating myself and I might have the dates wrong, but you know, where everyone all of a sudden was extremely like revved up at this idea of forced admissions of minorities. Um, and it was really poorly done back then. I wasn't a professional communicator back then. But I really thought that this was poorly done this time. Um, but I'll 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 caveat that by saying that you know just as soon as it was floated um, and and you started to hear some of the feedback to this idea that you know you are now talking about changing the position a draft position um, you know the operations of a team uh, you know based on on forced hiring of minorities. Uh, the the feedback was was pretty was pretty remarkable and and you know it was you know just a couple of days ago that the NFL you know used the term tabled they tabled the idea um, it, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going away uh, so I hope that they were informed by by the feedback and again as communicators or as leaders of their brand they they need to be listening to this feedback from the audiences to make more informed decisions to keep their brand pure. Um, I, I, I don't know where I stand on it personally. I, I, I don't know. And Bashan of the three of us, you're the, you're the only one in this conversation who can say that you've, you've walked a mile and in, in, in the shoes of a minority because you are a minority. Um, you know, it, it, I, I, I had a hard time with it. I do not have a hard time. And I, and I was very defensive of this at the Naval Academy that I did believe that the Naval Academy should do whatever in order to continue to diversify the school. And if that meant that a particular standard in the admissions board um, was possibly you know, relaxed a tiny bit, I do believe that diversity is good for this country, particularly after years and years and years of, of, of racism, which you know, really continues today. But uh, I, I, thought it, I thought it very uh, interesting how they floated the idea got the feedback, tabled the idea. We'll see where they go with it going forward. Yeah, for me, you know, this, it was, it was ridiculous. Um, because all that does, all that, um, all that statement says is it cheapens the worth and the value of minority coaches. What do you, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, in order to, uh, in order for my team to be successful, let me hire a black coach and then I'll, and then I'll be rewarded for it. Why not just be rewarded for the fact of a coach being able to succeed uh, on the field of play, which African-American coaches have been doing uh, over and over and over again. So, and, and actually to me, it exposes the, um, I, I, the ignorance of the Rooney rule. Quite frankly, it shines a spotlight uh, on that, which which nobody really talks about at length. Um, yes, th listen, there is a there is a large problem with race in our country. This is I'm not <laughs> not telling you anything new here, um, but the more rather than taking an educated, uh, a thorough uh, approach to understand and and sort of remedy how we get through that, how we, how we navigate race-related issues um, to, to sort of use this, this patchwork, oh, well, maybe this will work, or maybe this will uh, you know, provide more African-Americans or minority coaches an opportunity, uh, whether it's you know, sports or, or otherwise. Um, no, until you address the issues of, uh, of racism uh, in, in this country, uh, those these ideas are, are not going to work, in my opinion. Um, let let each individual stand on the merit uh, in the value of what they bring to the table. It makes me wonder how informed they were by the other trends going on. You know, here we were 
right after President Obama's speech uh, to the high school graduates, which, of course, inspired a lot of commentary, um, you know, from the likes of Karl Rove and others that, you know, even, even, you know, pretty closed minded people, you know, could could look at and say that might be a racist statement. Um, You know, the 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 death of the the murder of the jogger down in Florida. Um, you had a lot of you had a lot of issues out there and current events that that were just touching off um, a, a lot of a, a lot of reminders of the inherent racism in this country. And I don't I don't know uh, how much you know the NFL as an organization was informed by by these conversations and what was happening on social media, but it was. It was a pretty remarkable couple of weeks here for for these kind of issues. And John, decisions like that only come to rise because you don't have the right people sitting at the table. If you if if you, uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm making gestures as if people can see me here. Um, <laughs> it's an the, audio medium, everyone. Right. So so, you know, hello, hello. To to quote Herm Edwards, you know, you you've got to have you you have to have the right people in place so that you can have a knowledgeable discussion and take into account the environment in which we are operating in. Okay, that, that, that's, you saw the blowback immediately on Twitter, like, whoa, I'm sorry. How, how obtuse, dim-witted can you be to float this as an idea for, for hiring more minority coaches? Why don't you just look at who's, who, who can coach? Well, Go ahead. It also it it also I, I think it demonstrates two things. One, it demonstrates um, how little you respect the people and the foundations or uh, values of the game. Um, you know, to to even kind of mention that, and or two, you're you're just so off the mark in trying to float something that you think you'll get credit for that, um, you know, you're a poor marketeer or a poor communicator. So, you know, it's hard to understand whether this is just a a misunderstanding of um, what needs to be done and and what it means to be uh, in the NFL and what it means to kind of live those values, if there are any for the organization, or if this was just somebody's like kitschy way of trying to you know, generate some, some buzz. I mean, to use John's um, analogy about the Naval Academy or about any organization, I have zero problem if you want to um, adjust um, entry standards to bring in a certain demographic that you believe um, is otherwise disenfranchised. I do have a problem if you lower the standards once they're there for that group, um, you know, so that they can compete it in a way that they wouldn't normally be able to compete. And that's to me what the difference is, right? I, I actually, I mean, I, I think we've talked about this before. I don't have a problem with the Rooney rule. I have a problem with the way the Rooney rule has been implemented, right? The showboating of, hey, I'm going to go find two or three well-named black coaches that I have no intention of hiring because I've already decided who my guy um, is and who I want to coach. And you just kind of parade them around as a check in the block, that I have a problem with. The the intention of the Rooney Rule, I, I think, makes great sense. Um, it, it, it's just how it's been, uh, you know, ill handled. Right, right, right. Um, I I hope this winds finds its way off the table. That's that's what I'll offer there. Um, at the risk of going a little too sports heavy in our first segment, uh, I just want to, since we we've we've talked about this in the past, uh, I'd like to go back and talk a little bit about ESPN's documentary, The Last Dance with Michael Jordan and those 1998 Bulls, uh, concluded this past Sunday with episodes nine and 10. Uh, Of all the storylines to come out of this documentary, uh, which we've talked about at length, I believe the revelation of Pizzagate, uh, which which was was covered in in these last couple episodes, uh, definitely stuck out. Uh, I don't know if you saw where Colin Cowherd tracked down this infamous uh, pizza delivery guy uh, out there in Park City, Utah. Uh, who worked? It was a Pizza Hut. It was it was uh, determined that it was a Pizza Hut where this was ordered from. Uh, he this guy actually prepared a pepperoni thin crust pizza uh, for his airness uh, that that evening, uh, which uh, which and I know I commented to you guys about this off the air. 
which Michael Jordan consumed by himself uh, in front of some other people, which I, I found to be odd. But um, listen, all, all jokes aside, um, I think we, we've all said that this documentary, The Last Dance, was appointment viewing. Um, you know, I looked forward to Sunday evenings, uh, sitting down and, and, and watching that two hours of television. I know a lot of people uh, binged watch the program. Uh, but I know I'm not the only one who feels that, you know, come Sunday, just kind of where we are now with, with sports uh, not being around, live sports not being around, you know, what am I going to do uh, on those for those two hours on, on Sunday evening? And again, it, it speaks to what we, we've sort of just been talking about, um, our nationwide, our worldwide, um, you know, focus, focus on sports, focus on the sporting world, what brings us together. Um, and I, it was interesting. Um, I think we had talked about this a few episodes ago, how this was originally slated to, to air uh, later on in June. ESPN, given the circumstance and realities of where we are, moved the, um, moved the time frame up a little bit, you know, to capture its audience. Um, I would like to see more. I, I, I think you could, you know, you could put B.J. Armstrong, you could put Michael Jordan, you, you could put a bunch of those guys down. I think even Steve Kerr, uh, you know, to and I, and I think a, a lot of people don't know what was surprising to me was didn't know about Steve Kerr and the history of his father um, and, and him being assassinated. Um, so it was a bit of a history, history lesson to boot. Um, so, yeah, just very interesting to catch these backstories. I was captivated. I know you guys were, um, you know, if, if I had to see uh, a, a spinoff, uh, like I said, I, I'd love to see the furtherance of, um, you know, Phil Jackson as he moved away from Chicago, you know, Steve Kerr as he moved to San Antonio and won another championship, by the way, uh, after that 98 season. So again, yeah, yeah. just wanted to put that out there and give, uh, give it a little nod to, to ESPN and that documentary. Well, I'll, I'll make two points very, very quickly. First of all, you know, as a follower and, and fan of viral tweets on, on Twitter, uh, I, I have to tip my cap to the DiGiorno company. You know, they, they have the, the brand slogan, you know, it's, it's not delivery, it's DiGiorno. And right after the last dance episode, they came out with their tweet <laughs> that said, of course it was delivery. Uh, which was fantastic, like really well done. Um, so yeah, they, they, good good job on on the DiGiorno brand for for taking advantage of a pretty unique story. And then secondly, and I'll be quick here, it, you know, just during times of crisis, you know, certain things bring people together. And for me, um, you know, my kids, three boys, three basketball players. Um, were so moved by this documentary in ways that I couldn't have predicted. They, they didn't know who Michael Jordan, well, they knew who Michael Jordan was, but they didn't know what it was, you know, the phenomenon. And, and sometimes, you know, and, and you guys as fathers might, you know, probably know this too, but, you know, they've, they've heard all the coaching, I think, from me. You know, I, I, there's only so many times I can tell them that hard work pays off. Hey, this is what's going on. You know, the, the voice starts to become possibly like the the teacher in Charlie Brown, you know, like, burr, 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 burr. and sure enough, they, they watching, you know, what drove Michael Jordan to be a great athlete were so informed by that, by, by the uniqueness of the story, by the storytelling and, and, and just how good he was. I, I could see it change them, you know, after each, after each episode on Monday morning, if it wasn't raining, uh, those kids were out there playing basketball. So I have to thank ESPN for, for helping me continue to, to build good athletes in my home. All right, folks, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk Virginia Vineyards with our special guests. You're listening to Three Season of Pod. Provision Advisors, we prepare your team for the what-ifs you never thought you'd encounter. Let us help solve your toughest communication challenges and leave your team stronger and more capable for the opportunities that lie ahead. And we're back. This is Three Season of Pod. Today, we have a special guest with us on the show. Uh, in Virginia last week, local vineyards were allowed to reopen, and we felt it would be good to speak with someone directly involved in that process. She's the Director of Marketing for Early Mountain Vineyards in Madison, Virginia, and current student in the Master of Wine program. Please welcome to the show, Miss Eileen Sevier. Thank you for spending some time with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So pleased to be here. Excellent. 
Uh, Eileen, first of all, uh, we're each fans of your vineyards, uh, from the majestic scenery nestled amongst the backdrop of the Blue Ridge Mountains to the incredible assortment of early mountain wines that you offer. Uh, count us as some very loyal customers. Uh, but I tell you what, let's first look back just a bit and ask you to take us through those early days in March where the governor made the decision to close down the state. Uh, what was the general thinking there at Early Mountain as to how you would operate uh, and move yourselves forward? Yeah, so, wow, it feels like a long time ago, I will say. Um, we were pretty, it was a pretty intense situation because we had our largest festival of the year um, planned for the weekend of March 14th and 15th. So that's our oyster festival. And we had sold a thousand tickets. So we were planning to host, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people from throughout Virginia coming down from DC. And, you know, it, things just progressed so quickly. At the start of that week, we were, we were basically saying, well, it's good our oyster fest is this weekend. We probably wouldn't be able to have it a few weeks from, from now. And by Thursday of that week, it became very clear to us that we had to cancel it. Um, you know, we just felt like it was the wrong, um, the wrong time to be bringing that many people together. And in retrospect, I'm, I'm so, so thrilled um, that we had that leadership and foresight. Um, that weekend, we hosted a very, very minimal, well-spaced um, gathering of, of some of our fans. And then by Monday, um, the 16th, closed our doors to the public. But starting immediately that day, pivoted towards curbside pickups, you know, 10 to 4 every day. And then right away, we're, we're really nicely positioned to be able to sell wine online. And so quickly... We've been establishing a lot of different virtual tastings um, on many different platforms to be able to engage with consumers in, in a wide variety of, of ways and, you know, going from pretty in-depth geeky, you know, Zoom tastings to much more lifestyle, lighthearted um, Instagram live tastings. And the community has been incredible, you know, from our, our wine club members to fans to people who never have even been to the winery but had heard about our wines and wanted to support um, their local businesses um, to consumers throughout the country. Um, you know, we've been getting orders from California, Washington State. And so we've been able to build a, a very robust online business that's kept us going. As time progressed, you know, you, you set yourself up, you said, okay, you know, immediately we're going to have to ship gears here. Um, in, in order to sell our product. What trends did you watch over these two and a half months um, that you had to adjust to? So I think the main thing for us was finding the right cadence for our virtual tastings. So we're a destination winery. Um, you know, our fans are coming from pretty far afield, you know, sometimes driving two hours to come and visit us. And we provide escape, we provide beauty, we provide education. And so we didn't want, I never really took the approach in my messaging to say, help us, we're desperate, like, please buy because we don't want to go out of business. Instead, from the beginning, I tried to instead think about how could we provide that same escape that same education, you know, that same connection and joy through um, the mechanisms available to us, which was, you know, sending wine to our consumers and then um, creating these virtual experiences for them. And so in the first couple of weeks, I tried a wide variety of different formats and then really landed on um, Saturdays, 5 p.m. I do a tasting called Taste of Virginia and I'm hosting a wide array of other Virginia wineries as part of it. We generally release a pack um, eight days in advance, so the Friday prior, um, and then sell that pack throughout the coming week to um, fans who want to participate. Anyone can join in. Um, it's streamed live on our Facebook page. But creating these really fun experiences, I, I literally almost cry every Sunday morning because I get the kindest messages from people saying, this was our date night. This was our escape. We look forward to this all week. Um, and so just that joy of being able to, again, create that connection and escape and experience um, 
is really rewarding. Okay. And so, so for, oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead, please. For example, the one we're doing Saturday is in honor of open local wine night. I don't know if you've seen this kind of hashtag. So the, the self-proclaimed holiday is Friday. Um, we're doing it on Saturday. And we're opening up some wines from our, our, our library. We're looking forward and we're having a conversation as an early mountain team about how wines age, you know, what we're seeing in the progression of, of some of the wines. Um, so that's kind of a geekier version of it. Last week, we did one called Four Shades of Rosé, um, hosted the owner of one of my favorite home goods shops, Salt and Sundry in DC, Amanda, um, who's amazing created a tablescape, talked through the viewers of, of you know, how she was thinking about it. And then she t um, looked at the submissions to everyone's um, rosé tablescape at home and then chose a winner by the end of the tasting. So we tasted through four rosés. We talked with the winemakers, but it was a little lighter um, and fluffier. And then the following, so not this coming Saturday, but the next Saturday, May 30th, um, I just lined up, we're going to do a barbecue edition. So we're going to be hosting Stephen Barnard, the winemaker at Keswick, who's from South Africa, is going to be building a braai, which is the South African, you know, all day barbecue. Um, and then we are going to be doing some Southern barbecue. We created some seasoned salts and rubs and, and have three wines that we're packing um, to, to support that tasting. So a, a lot of business owners have to be, you know, dragged kicking and screaming into the 21st century of communication reliance on social media. Um, you know, it's outside of the paradigm, um, you know, that was in place when they first started their business. H how much, you know, it, how, you know, was your acumen with uh, social media and, and did you find it difficult to, kind of change your business model on the fly like this uh, in order to communicate with your customers in a new way? We're, we were well positioned to be able to make a fast pivot in the sense that we have a director of marketing. You know, my experience is in social media communications, digital communications, connecting to consumers um, and in a way, I don't want to say this has been fun <laughs> per se, but it's been fascinating as a marketer. I, I don't think there's been any other time in the history of kind of modern consumerism that a wholesale change in consumer behavior has happened all at once so broadly. And it, it's just looking at the data and looking at how people respond has been super, super interesting. And there's incredible engagement through social media. There's incredible engagement through, you know, the emails that we're sending out. People are hungry for content. Um, so we, I don't want to say, we certainly didn't need to be drag kicking, kicking and screaming. It was more, it's been a fascinating process to watch and, and again, kind of fun to, to do and, and try out these new things. So if you had to predict where it's going, so let's hope that in two to three to four months that the, there is the return of some form of normalcy. Um, you know, the, the three of us have been talking a lot about how this might be the new normal. So if it is the new normal, you know, in, in your future planning, what are you, what kind of ideas are you guys kicking around for remaining relevant, remaining uh, or keeping that audience engaged with uh, new and inventive ideas? You know, do, do you have, kind of a bag of tricks that you're that you're kind of holding on the side for you know if this is still going once the summer is over I think it's applying the learnings that we've gained from the virtual tastings we've been doing and the different ways of connecting with our consumers um, not in person um, but through a variety of online channels and just continuing to layer them on as a new option. And so even as we're going to be slowly opening up and we are taking a much more cautious approach than many of the wineries in our region. Um, we did not choose to open our outdoor space last Friday when um, phase one would have allowed it, mostly because we want to just give some additional time and make sure that as people are you know, engaging outdoors and in these outdoor spaces, if there's an uptick 
you know, we want to give it enough time to make sure that we are, we are being cautious and we are not necessarily part of creating that. Um, our plan is to first open up to our club members exclusively the weekend of June 12th, all pre-reservation, all super space throughout our 350 acres of property. But looking into the future, we will absolutely continue adding on these virtual experiences because we have fans throughout the country. And it's so funny to me. I, I sat with our club member, I don't know how many times saying, you know, it's, it's, it's too bad that more people can't come to these amazing pickup parties. You know, I just wish we could offer something to our fans in California and, and New York and throughout the country. Never occurred to any of us to do a virtual tasting. And it's, it's such an obvious thing now that, that we're in this situation. We're absolutely going to continue doing it because people love them and they're learning a lot. And it's, Everyone has a different comfort level, even as we open up. You know, there's some folks who might not want to be going out and, you know, being in close contact with folks, even safely, um, three, four, five months from now. So it's more just having another channel to reach people um, and create experiences for them. One of the things that comes through um, loud and clear, whether you visit the winery in person, whether you attend one of these events, is you guys have a really, really good sense of what your brand is. Um, and it's very authentic. Um, I mean, you kind of alluded to that. And perhaps that's why the pivot was as quick. And I, I don't want to undersell, but maybe as easy as it at least uh, appeared. Talk a little bit about how you guys kind of manage that brand and how the marketing um, comes out of that. Uh, for, for those that are trying to figure out, I mean, you know, we kind of pitch this to an audience of communicators and marketeers who want to learn from pros like yourself. How does an idea get discussed, get tested, and then get get implemented or thrown aside if it, if it doesn't match that brand? I had some amazing training um, in my, I say my former life. So prior to working at Early Mountain, I was a a marketing manager at Trilotta Wines, which is a luxury importer based in Chicago. And I was there almost 10 years and managed 18 wineries for them, working with a lot of our iconic, you know, multi-generational family wineries, um, including Bollinger Champagne, Rocchioli Vineyards in Russian River Valley, um, Chapoutier in the Northern Rhone and Hermitage. And we had a stable of over 90 wineries that we were working with. And so the discipline that we really um, had as marketers is um, the chairman, Tony Trilotto, you know, who is in his 80s. He was amazing. Just one of those brilliant kind of instinctual marketers, someone who created a category of wine in the United States. He would always challenge us and say seven words. You should only need seven words to describe your brand. And they have to really not be able to apply to, you know, the other wineries that you're managing as well. And he would also challenge us to always be able to envision our consumer, you know, our bullseye target consumer. Who is it when you're creating your messaging? Who are you speaking to? Who are you, who are you thinking about? And so when I joined Early Mountain, um, now about two and a half years ago, I think there was a lot of really good work that was done but it, it didn't have the same discipline necessarily of kind of putting pen to paper or putting the visuals to that. And so it was a lot of fun because it, it wasn't really changing anything. It was just kind of tightening up um, what we'd already been doing. And so our, our seven words, and it's um, four words, because if you can get it even shorter, it's even better, is Virginia through and through. And while certainly there's a lot of Virginia wineries who could in some ways use those words, we are the only one that not just is talking about Early Mountain, but also has our Best of Virginia program, which is um, supporting other Virginia wineries and selling them in our tasting room and our former pre-COVID lives, um, but now through our virtual tastings that we're also featuring exclusively other Virginia wines. Um, you know, our bullseye target consumer I, I know what she, you know, watches on TV. I know what else she enjoys drinking. I know how she shops. Um, and that just always helps create these very tight uh, messages. It's interesting that you say Virginia through and through because um, 
the idea or the feeling that you guys are a leader um, in and for uh, Virginia wines comes through very clearly. Uh, I mean, I would say that, you know, as somebody that grew up in Southern Maryland and has been a wine lover and has lived all over the world, Virginia wines, um, I would say until recently, didn't have the best reputation. Some of that may have just been a result of branding. Some of it may have just been that they weren't getting to the right folks. But the fact that you guys go out of your way to showcase that, um, I, I think is special. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of how that decision came to be? And, you, you know, so there's, there's risk associated with, with that as well. It is very much at the core of why Early Mountain exists. So the owners of Early Mountain are Jean Case and her husband, Steve. They're tech entrepreneurs. Um, so Steve was one of the founders of America Online. Jean was the chief marketing officer. And the reason that they purchased um, the property that became Early Mountain was because they were tasting wines like Veritas and King Family. And their eyes were opened and they felt that the quality was there. Um, Barbersville as well um, felt the quality was there, but the story wasn't being told. And so as entrepreneurial minded um, people, they really believed the best way they could participate in telling that story, establishing this category was to buy a winery and to resource it, to be able to be part of that. And so with many regions, there's a range of quality. I think where Virginia has both advantages but also disadvantages is we're near a population center. We're in a beautiful part of the country. So tourism is a big part of our industry. When you have a captive audience, some wineries don't necessarily invest in, you know, focus on vineyards first because all quality starts in the vineyard, no matter the region. In Virginia, the challenges of grape growing here are most solved by planting on mountainsides, rockier soils, better airflow. Mountainsides are not necessarily, you know, think of Shenandoah Valley or some of the other kind of mountainside vineyards. That's not where you're going to have a tourism center necessarily. And so it's really putting, you know, money in the ground in the places where quality is most possible. And then, you know, letting that lead um, as far as what you're doing. Early Mountain itself, and, and Jean would be the first person to say this, the vineyards directly surrounding Early Mountain are not going to make the most age-worthy, serious, you know, red wines that, that she has the ambition and we together have the ambition to make. It took investing in a mountainside vineyard um, to be able to create wines at that level. And then allowing the vines and the vineyards around Early Mountain to be what they're meant to be. It's a statement that Ben and Maya, our, our winemakers say all the time, is letting the vines really show us what's appropriate from a style standpoint. Um, as, as opposed to saying, I wanna make this, I'm gonna force the vines into doing that. There's risk, certainly, in focusing overall on telling a regional story, because obviously we don't control what everyone else does. But the desire is there. The possibility is there. There are a lot of amazing, amazing world-class wines um, being made in Virginia. And we do a lot of partnering um, with folks um, who really appreciate that we're, we're committed to tell that story with them. Eileen, I'm actually I'm captivated by by what you're what you're talking about. Uh, as we, Chris was saying that uh, we we try to talk to people about you know how they're communicating uh, with their audience, how they're expanding this conversation, uh, given the current realities that we're facing. Are you all looking at other vineyards and how they're uh, conducting their business, uh, conducting their business model? Uh, with regard to the pandemic, uh, what decisions you know are you making? Have you made about how you're going to uh, to to operate once things get back to quote unquote normal? Um, you know, can you can you speak to us a little bit about you know what what you do have out there uh, in in the future uh, for Early Mountain? Um, with regards to our own production or with regards to other wineries? No, you, you, with regards to, to your production, how, how you all are conducting business. Yeah, so we're we're constantly on the hunt for, you know, those great mountainside vineyards. Um, 
essentially one of the struggles in Virginia wine has been that we can't keep up. We collectively as a region can't keep up with demand. Okay. Um, and so all of a sudden there's a little bit of a transition right now where as a tourism led and as a DTC direct to consumer model as a region, um, there's possibly going to be some additional, you know, very high quality fruit available for purchase this season. All of that being said, honestly, 2020 has been insane in a number of ways. Um, I don't know if, if you all know, but it was a very early bud break um, because of the mild winter. It was about two weeks ahead of schedule. And then a lot of vineyards got whacked with some pretty intense frost. We were so insanely lucky. Um, we have a couple blocks around Early Mountain um, that had some damage, but nothing compared to some of the dev devastation that, that some of our friends and neighbors have had to deal with. And so we don't quite know yet as far as grape supply this vintage, you know, as a result of that. Um, but with something like this, and it's the same in the restaurant industry and in the wine distribution piece of it, you know, in the broader American economy, you know, businesses that were kind of on the edge, you know, unfortunately might not make it through it. So of course we're watching to see, are there great vineyards that are going to come available? Are, is there additional fruit that's going to be available of very high quality? And we are positioned to um, you know, be part of that. When you say that the, the demand far outweighs uh, the supply in which you can offer, is that a good problem? Is, uh, is, that, is that something that uh, you have to carefully, you know, watch in terms, of, uh, in terms of your own production, in terms of your own sort of prominence as, as a vineyard? Mm -hmm. um, I was speaking both generally um, and then Early Mountain specifically. So generally, if you look at the numbers, and you look at you know case production versus vineyards being planted versus visitor you know visitors to Virginia wine country, visitors to Virginia wine country is growing faster than vineyards going in the ground, um, and so on a whole, when I think about long term brand building, it's really important that we get out of our little bubble of Virginia. Um, so one of the initiatives you know I took on when I joined two and a half years ago was say we need to distribute our wine in New York. New York is, it's the center of everything in the fine wine world in the sense of it's where most journalists are based. It's where a lot of the tastemakers are. And so if we really believe in telling this bigger story, DC matters a lot. New York matters a lot too. We need to overinvest in getting into that market and, um, and seeing what the response is. Okay. So many other folks had said, oh, it's so competitive. Everyone in the world is in New York, which is true. And we found this amazing reception. Um, and so as far as getting out and having enough supply to go beyond your, you know, the four walls of your tasting room and get into those top DC restaurants or get into New York or get into other, you know, Boston top wine markets, we need enough supply that there's pressure to do that. Um, as business people, we make far more dollars in profitability selling it to a consumer directly across our tasting bar okay. than selling it to a distributor who's selling it to a, a restaurant or a fine wine shop who's selling it to the consumer. But you'll never build your brand long term unless you make that investment. And so we, you know, I'm, I'm a marketer, but I also oversee all of our distribution sales because the way that you make those decisions and the way you go out into the world very much influences what your brand means to people. Um, so that's, I guess, what I mean as far as we can't keep up. Um, you know, some wineries certainly do sell out of, of everything and then, um, you know, are kind of always struggling to keep up. We've managed, I mean, it was interesting, 2020 was going to be a year where we were going to be really selling out of a lot of stuff and really kind of struggling to make sure that we had the right range of offerings. Um, because of the impact of COVID, we've been selling an incredible amount of wine online, um, but not quite at the same diversity as we would sell in our tasting room when we're able to talk through, you know, nine wines. Um, it's a lot easier to sell things that are very established, like our rosé, like our Foothills blend. Um, through our online channels. 
And so we're actually going to end up way more in balance um, coming out of this than we would have been this year. Okay. All right. Eileen, what is your, so it probably a good thing that, that you're in your position and not Chris Bashan or me or me, or else we'd probably, you know, drink the, uh, entire, uh, stock out of, uh, out from under the winery. But, you know, for, you know, just a, a wine connoisseur's question here, what is your best selling wine? And, um, and, and what do you personally enjoy the most, uh, from your own collection? So our best-selling wine is our rosé, um, you know, and it is a wine that sells out. And then, you know, there's almost a, a very anticipatory period until we're able to release it um, in the spring each year. Rosé also is a special wine for me as a marketer because as we're going out into the world, it's a chance if a consumer's not familiar with Virginia wine, they're going to see it poured by the glass at, you know, a great restaurant and try it maybe before they even realize they're drinking a Virginia wine. In a fine wine shop, most rosé sets are global sets. So we're not in some dusty Virginia section. We're, you know, next to Provence or Italian risotto. So again, it's a chance to really stand shoulder to shoulder with the wines of the world um, and stand out and be amazing. And, and you know, I think really over-deliver on quality um, for price. I have a very um, strong affection for Petite Mensing. Um, it's the reason I joined Early Mountain. When I moved to Charlottesville, my husband's a professor at UVA. So we moved to Charlottesville and I kept my job at Terlata Wines. And I flew back to Chicago for over three years um, for that job. And in my head, you know, it was, I'm working with the greatest wineries in the world. Virginia wine, it's nice, but I'm not sure it's, you know, my scene. Um, and it was really, first of all, hearing the vision of, of Jean for the winery, the vision to not just deliver on this kind of brand, um, goal, but on an overall regional goal, that's a much more exciting challenge for me. Um, but really then meeting Ben Jordan, our winemaker and tasting the petite men saying was, a you know, a light bulb moment of there's something really exciting here. I can build this into something that people are gonna talk about, you know, 20, 30, 40 years from now. So that's always my favorite, um, is our petite men saying. Nice, I'll, uh, I'll turn it over to Chris uh, to close us out, but one last question. I assume in order to build your acumen, um, you know, that, that you've, you've tried to experience, uh, you know, the entirety of, of wine out there. Have you been to Napa? Have you been to Sonoma? Have you been to France and Italy? And, and how did those experiences, if so, how did they better educate you and prepare you in order to be so successful as you are today? Yeah, I've traveled very broadly um, through the world of wine, um, pretty broadly in Italy, France, Spain, Portugal, Austria, um, all through California, upstate New York. Um, and one of the really important aspects of the Master of Wine program, um, which you mentioned in my intro, is that you have to approach that program with a very global perspective. One of my, I don't know if concerns is the right word, but you know, kind of concerns as I was going to Virginia Wine was I didn't want to get too in a bubble. I didn't want to get too, you know, sometimes in Virginia Wine, we're talking to ourselves quite a bit, but through my studies, I'm forced to be thinking about the Chinese market or what's going on in Australian wine, um, I can't move through that program without having a very, very global perspective. And so I've continued traveling um, broadly, you know, through that program. And I think it's, I think it's so essential. And we, we overall have a pretty global perspective because there's a number of, you know, the winemaker at King Family is from Hermitage, from, from the Northern Rhone. As I mentioned, the winemaker at Keswick's from South Africa. Um, our winemaker just happens to be a, a born and bred um, Shenandoah Valley boy. But our associate winemaker grew up in California um, and came from UC Davis. So, yeah, I mean, you have to be thinking broadly if your goal is to establish, you know, the region as, as best in class, as globally relevant. Um, and we, we have that. I've looked at my list of questions and we've, we've asked most of them. So I'll ask just two very quick, fun questions. Um, one was, uh, 
Did you know that um, Trevor Noah and Jose Andres were going to feature the rosé, or was that a su- surprise? Uh, f- first off, that, that's my my first question. It was a total surprise. Um, so, you know, we um, have some connections with Jose, and so we're able to drop off a case of wine for him um, the week prior. And it was very much with the intention of, Jose, we know you love Rosé, and um, and we really just wanted to thank him for all the good work he's been doing throughout this period. And, you know, I'm a, I'm kind of an early bird, so I, did, I was not up. I did not get the text from people at 11 o'clock, you know, and so, you know, around 5.30, I got the text of, hey, this happened. Here's the link. I was like, oh, okay. Like, that's cool. Kind of assuming maybe it was a far back bottle shot. Um, at Terlato, I did a lot of kind of product placement stuff with Top Chef, with a number of programs. So usually it's, you know, okay, someone spot a, spotted a bottle. And then when I watched it, it was like, whoa, wait, this is kind of an amazing, huge deal. <laughs> um, and it's, it has been. I mean, again, just seeing people from Las Vegas, from out West, from California, of saying, if Jose says this is good, because Jose is, let's be honest, a god. <laughs> you know, every, every everyone loves Jose. People have really wanted to try it. So no, that that's fantastic. Um, and then, you know, that last question I would, would have is um assuming you kind of touched on a little bit, but assuming that um the trends continue in the right direction, you said you expect to have um uh wine members out in June. What does the rest of the summer look like for you? both as a marketeer, but then from the, the wine, I mean, do you kind of, or from the winery, do you kind of take it easy and not go too far or h- how do you meter the rest of the summer to make sure that one, you're true to your brand and two, that you, you get it right from a health and from a comfort standpoint of your customers? We are definitely a proceed with caution um, approach to opening up our hospitality spaces again. Um, both from a safety standpoint, but also, you know, we just feel like we deliver such a special hospitality experience. And we want to make sure that we're able to deliver that when people do make the track. Um, you know, it will be very special to be a place that maybe it's the first time someone's had a chance to really get out and, um, you know, mingle in a safe way with their with their friends. We just know we want to deliver to the standards um, that our brand has, has created. And we don't quite know what that will look like, except to say that I have full confidence in our team that we'll do it extremely well, extremely cautiously, um, extremely safely. And, you know, luckily we live in a a very beautiful part of the world and we have a lot of property to spread out on. So hopefully we'll have a chance to welcome some of the, the listeners to this program soon. Oh, that's great. Bash, I'm going to let you close it out. But I do want to say, uh, as I mentioned, Eileen, I, I had the opportunity to live in Monterey and spend a lot of time drinking wine there and in Napa. I've lived in Italy. I've traveled in France, as of all of us. And uh, for those folks, if you get a chance to try Early Mountain, you will be hooked for all of the reasons that you just talked about. And then if you live in the D.C. area, it is absolutely worth the drive. I mean, you just get to see so many cool places that, you know, to the to the left of I-95 that we sometimes don't get a chance to, to see as we zip up and down 95. Um, it's just such a beautiful area and it's such a rewarding visit to uh, to spend time with people like you. So thank you very much. This is, uh, as I put in my email, this is a fanboy moment uh, for, for me. And so I'm very excited that you were able to come on. Yeah, again, really appreciate you having me. And, you know, for folks who want to keep up on our, our plans and when we're able to welcome folks, um, earlymountain.com and all of our social media channels um, will keep updated. Eileen, thank you so very much. Listen, before we let you go, you had mentioned a couple of uh, nights you have coming up. This coming Saturday is we are celebrating at Early Mountain Open Local Wine Night. Um, If you go to our shop, you'll see um, the first kind of six wines are the wines we'll be tasting as a team. Um, The code OPENLOCALWINE gets you a 20% discount on those products. Um, The weekend after that is actually going to be our kind of barbecue versus braai tasting. We will post the info for that by Friday. Um, We do have some grill packs on the 
um, the website right now, including local products and some, some rubs and salts that are chef made. But all of our tastings, the recordings are on our Facebook page. And so we've had folks buy the wines a week or two weeks later um, and then watch the, um, the recorded tasting as well. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the website, earlymountain.com. She's Eileen Sevier, Director of Marketing for Early Mountain Vineyards. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It was super fun. You got it. You're going to see us soon. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, we're going to take a break. Stick with us. You're listening to Three Season of Pod. At Provision Advisors, we specialize in strategic communication planning, execution, and coaching for senior-level leaders and communicators dedicated to achieving success. We work together with your team to achieve favorable outcomes amid contentious or controversial issues which directly impact relationships and market identity. And we're back. It's time to look out on the horizon. John, I'm going to go to you. What are you paying attention to in the week ahead? Uh, thanks, Bash. And and uh, I'll just say that uh, that segment with Eileen was phenomenal. I hope our listeners uh, you know, take copious notes of that, uh, not just to visit the winery uh, when it opens up and, and to try their wine, but some real gems uh, of marketing in there. For me, with coronavirus, my horizon is going to be the, the evolution of mental health uh, because of the pandemic. The um, I think all of us are now starting to reach the point where we're fraying, um, you know, some more than others. Uh, I know my kids are, um, you know, the, the effects of, of just the tremendous change that has taken place uh, from basic creature comforts and, and ways of doing business to, you know, people being, you know, stranded in their homes to the very basics of wearing a mask all the time. I know, you know, Chris and I were, you know, in a golf shop yesterday and, and I, I get uncomfortable wearing a mask and it starts making me uncomfortable. So there was a really poignant article in ESPN this week from Michael Phelps, who has previously struggled with mental health and been very open about it, uh, where he, you know, talked about his, his fragility right now um, during the pandemic and, and how his mental health is being adversely affected by it. Uh, so I'm really looking at how organizations and companies use this pandemic and, and use Michael Phelps's words possibly as as the impetus for them to establish a, a line of communication with their with their audiences, with their employees, uh, with the people they care about, um, to make sure that mental health is at the forefront of their thinking. Uh, yeah, that. We, we do know how much the, the pandemic has affected us logistically and, and, and physically, but the, the mental portion of it uh, cannot be ignored, should not be ignored. Um, and, and I really implore communicators and leaders out there uh, to incorporate this calculus uh, into their future operations. Thank you, John. That's, it's actually, that's not to be taken lightly. Just need to, to definitely reiterate and echo what you just said. Uh, it, it's something we need to pay attention to within ourselves and within our households. So uh, thank you for bringing that up. Chris, over to you. On the horizon, I'm really watching closely how organizations and businesses and major brands handle this first coming out of the crisis. Um, there are two at least two critical moments in crisis communication. One is how quickly you're able to transition and get into the crisis. The second is how you come out of it. And for as valued as speed is on the front end, I think equally of value is deliberate pace on the back end. I think those organizations, those brands, those companies that try to come out of it too quickly whether that's an internal communication or whether it's an external communication, significantly run a risk. My horizon is looking at what companies are doing it right. Uh, I think we just highlighted one uh, in that segment with Eileen. And then what companies maybe are, are not doing it uh, as well as they could um, and pointing those out so that the collective audience can learn from it. Thank you, Chris. Uh, I know it. In those businesses that that you talk about, I mean, even our business, uh, as 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 we forge forward, um, it's something that we have to pay attention to, um, and how we how we go about doing our day to day uh, business and, and growing and changing 
and, and identifying and paying attention to to new ways of uh, of, of excelling, new ways of, of gaining success. So we're definitely going to look forward to that. I uh, appreciate it. Uh, gentlemen, before we close out here, I just want to make uh, a quick reference. I know I uh, made mention of the class of 2020 in the intro. Um, if you were able, I know last week we saw uh, quite a few things taking place in the sports arena. Uh, we were also able to see uh, former President Barack Obama give an address uh, to the class of 2020. Again, just a bit of a head nod. Uh, to those uh, students who have been effectively been denied the official pomp and circumstance uh, of, of a graduation that we typically see in May and June uh, from high schools and uh, in colleges across the nation. Uh, but as I look out on the horizon this week uh, in the world of presidential news, I, I'd just like to, to point to one thing. And what has seemingly been a, a longstanding tradition within the White House, where official portraits of the president and first lady uh, have been unveiled by the incumbent president, it seems that this current administration has reportedly decided not to carry out this tradition uh, that was reported uh, recently. Uh, now, listen, I have several thoughts about this particular bit of reporting, but I'll simply say this. Uh, I generally look forward to a time uh, when our nation's leaders will keep in mind uh, the legacy uh, that we forge moving forward uh, in the behavior which we want to put on display for our children. Uh, my fear right now is that the high road is becoming further and further away uh, from our grasp. Uh, listen, class of 2020, uh, I, I ask of you uh, to please take this time uh, to, to look within yourselves and uh, find the good, all right? Uh, overcome the challenges uh, that you're presented with. This is a time for you to, to, to take on the mantle of leadership from a place of goodness. Uh, at least that's my hope. And I'll leave it right there. Folks, I want to thank you for listening. As always, appreciate you joining this conversation. Uh, if you're looking for more information as your business or organization navigates the communication environment, feel free to reach out to us at provisionadvisors.net. Be mindful and be safe out there. Thank you for listening to Three C's in a Pod. Have a great week.